0: He kōna nā eipurangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Tēnā koutou katoa, I'm Philippa Tali, and welcome to Insight. This week, closed adoption and its impact on Māori.
1: The number one question that people ask you in Te Ao Māori is, no he koe, where are you from? And that was probably the most confronting question ever.
0: What happens when Māori children are deprived of their whakapapa from birth? Under the 1955 Adoption Act, thousands of Māori babies were adopted into Pākehā families. Birth records were sealed and the vital links connecting adopted Māori to their genealogy, or whakapapa, were severed. Te Hurahanga Hurahanganui takes a look at the old Adoption Act and its impact on Māori who grew up desperate to reconnect. Hi. How are you? Nice to
2: meet you.
3: I meet Annabelle Ahudidi Driscoll at the top of a long walkway, just outside the small township of Tokoroa. She and her teenage son Jacob flew here from Christchurch to spend the weekend with Nan Marlene, Uncle Mickey and Auntie Marina. Annabelle's father, David, died a few years ago, but he's here too, dressed in a navy uniform and smiling in an old photograph. Do you think you look like him? Oh, a little bit. Yeah. It's a warm autumn afternoon, so we decide to enjoy the sun and sit outside. Through a sliding door to the living room, about a metre away, I can see mattresses lining the floor. Nan Marlene says it's always special when Fano come to stay.
4: When anyone who comes to stay, you know, well, if there's a bed, yeah, you sleep in that. Yeah, you can go there, yeah. You you know, things are just, you've come into the home. We're not going to lay anything or we're not going to try and do anything. You're welcome and, yeah. Mm.
3: Annabelle certainly looks at home here, but this place and her ahuriri whanau haven't always been so familiar. 24 years ago, she was meeting her birth family for the first time. Annabelle looked quite a lot different then.
4: Annabelle didn't even have any hair I then. I did. I had a shaved head at that time. <laughs> she did. She, and that's what struck me. Probably, look shocking. Mm. <laughs> but gee, she's still beautiful. Very polite and very interested. But what I did feel in her, there was a um, Maori side of her coming through. She was interested in, in where where my family came from and a lot about Koro where his whānau came from, Ngāti Puro, that stuck out to me, you know, that she had this inbred in her that her and
3: she was wanting she had a hunger for it and that hunger to fill the missing links to her whakapapa would remain for the rest of Annabelle's young adult life, but she wasn't alone Between 1955 and 1985, adoption in New Zealand was at its peak. About 45,000 adoptions took place during this period, and while exact figures are not known, a significant proportion of those included Māori babies, the majority of whom were placed within Pākehā families. The 1955 Adoption Act promoted the common practice of so-called closed stranger adoption, where birth parents could not access information about the child or their adoptive parents, and vice versa. The child was given all the legal rights of a citizen as if they were born by their adoptive parents. They were to start a new life, with no information about who or where they came from, and like many Māori raised by way of closed stranger adoption, it left Annabelle without any roots and a void she longed to fill.
2: It was sort of like a physical pain actually of just not knowing and particularly not knowing Papa, My adoptive family didn't encourage me learning the real. I really wanted to. But they said it doesn't count, you're not Māori enough You know, they had a fraction that, you know, social welfare had given them and decided that you're actually not really Māori.
3: Before the arrival of European settlers in New Zealand, Te Reo Māori was solely an oral language, and whakapapa was passed down through traditional chants or moteatea and through waiata, haka and stories. The word whakapapa literally means to lay one thing upon another. Mike Kawana, a kaumatua from Wairarapa, explains Māori see themselves in relation to the many layers or generations that came before and after them. He says it can be traced right back to the creator of all things, iō.
5: When you look at the different cultures around and the way that they, uh, they're able to show who they are, where they're from, how they connect to things, Māori is quite unique in that our whakapapa traces us right back to the beginning of time, right back to when all things were created. I mean, some experts in whakapapa can recite from iō right down to, to them today.
3: Vati says Papa runs even deeper – it shows the relationship an individual has with the land and where ancestral landmarks are situated within their tribal rohe.
5: Although on a paper you look at a whakapapa and it says so-and-so married so-and-so and they had so-and-so, yeah. there's so much more to it than that.
3: It's more than just a family tree.
5: Yeah, trait. yeah. Why we say Korangitum mo te maunga ko ruma, hanga, te awa, you know, it's, it's, it's not just something that we want to acknowledge our mountain and acknowledge our river. There's a connection there. Always has been and always will be, Um, and that's because of Whakapapa.
3: Annabelle was born in 1976 at Christchurch Women's Hospital, but was later transferred to Karitani Hospital shortly after, while she waited for an adoptive family. Linda and Peter Driscoll, who couldn't have children of their own at that time, had applied to be adoptive parents, After several interviews with Social Welfare, they had been approved, and within weeks, they received a call that there was a baby available to adopt.
6: Oh, most amazing day of my life. She was about, I don't know, 12, 14 weeks old. No, fell in love with her straight away. How much did you know about where she came from? We knew she was born in Christchurch. We knew her mother was in Christchurch and father, I believe, at that time. There were no names given to us. They didn't give us exacts, but they said, yes, she was a part Maori
3: baby. No, that's probably about it, really. Linda says she was always open with Annabelle about her adoption.
6: Well, I told her in the car on the way home from Karatani, so she was there. That- 14-week-old baby, and we talked about it then. I know she couldn't understand, but it, it made it easier for me if mm. we sort of always talked about it, and so it was always in her life that she was adopted. And we had some very simple children's books on adoption. It was just part of her life and our life. That, mm. That's how Annabelle came into our life. Remember Uncle Davis? Oh, she she imagined that <laughs> my brother-in-law might have been her father because they had similar birthmarks on their legs. <laughs> But that wasn't something
3: that we'd ever talked about. So she was curious then. Was she curious? Yes, I'd say so. Annabelle's curiosity would indeed continue to grow. As early as thirteen, she remembers asking her adoptive parents if she could learn Te Reo Maori at school.
2: It was offered at high school, and I really wanted to go. But I was still—I listened to what my mum said. She said, "Do Japanese. It'll get you a job." Well, so I learned Japanese for five years and was really not very happy. <laughs> Felt wrong, I'm not learning my own language.
3: It soon became clear to Annabelle that she didn't quite belong.
2: They're really good parents, I think they've instilled really good values in me. They, they certainly always knew I was loved and I, and I had everything I needed, but just that misunderstanding of who I am, that was my feeling growing up. I really didn't quite fit. So you
7: know Māori, we will say, you know, where are you from, who are you related to, that's, what's your family name, that's how we connect. And if you can't do that, um, a lot of the participants I met feel great shame and feel really invisible as Māori.
3: Professor Maria Hainga-Collins says "Fakapapa is an important part of whakafanaungatanga, or creating relationships. She is a Māori adoptee herself, who recently completed a master's thesis about the experience of Māori adults who were adopted into Pākehā families by way of closed stranger adoption. When the Adult Adoption Information Act came into force in 1985, it allowed adopted people 20 years or older the right to finally obtain their original birth certificate, unless a veto was put in place by their birth parents. It also introduced open adoption, where birth parents still have a connection to the adopted child. But Ms Hainga-Collins says 20 years without any access to birth families had a profound impact on Māori, and while it affected all children, Māori were hurt in very particular ways.
7: I think it affects everyone, but I think there's a laddered layer for Māori because of the cultural significance of being able to give your whakapapa. If you can't connect, you really feel at a loss and pretty much invisible.
3: You're listening to an Insight programme with me, Tianiwa nui exploring the impact closed adoption had on Māori. Um, so, so these are
1: what...
3: The view from Paul Eagle's parliamentary office extends from the western suburb of Wadestown to Queen's Wharf in Wellington.
1: In fact, I can actually see into where the Prime Minister's office is.
3: Paul Eagle is the MP for Rungotai, and the city is his home. But his life didn't begin here. He too was adopted into a Pakeha family shortly after he was born and spent some of his childhood in Christchurch before moving to Wellington. In July last year, he decided to speak publicly about his adoption for the first time during his maiden speech at Parliament.
1: It would be more than 20 years before I'd see my birth parents again. My birth mother uh, <coughs> my birth mother told me off her sadness, how she missed me and worried about how I was doing. At shopping malls, she would look at each little Māori boy and wonder if it were me. But over 45 years later... <laughs> It's still nice to know that she wanted me.
3: He got his last name, Eagle, from his adopted parents, Brian and Judith. At their home in Rotorua, they show me what their son looked like as a baby. Yeah, that's what he looked like really?
4: when we first picked <laughs> Whoa, him up. Whoa, big baby. <laughs> he was quite a solid baby. Yeah.
3: Brian and Judith Eagle still remember picking Paul up at a foster home in West Auckland in 1972 yeah. and bringing him home to Tokoroa, where they lived for a short time later that day. Went over to the house where it was being held, and
4: She, an older woman, and she brought Paul out for us and, and we took him, <laughs> basically. That's all that happened.
3: And and describe the moment you saw Paul. He
6: had big hands and big feet. (laughs) But he was quite nice looking, baby.
3: Strong hands and big feet. The only other information Judith and Brian had of Paul when they met him was that he was Māori. With little information about where their son came from, Brian and Judith tried to connect him with his Māori identity in other ways. They enrolled Paul and his three other siblings, including their adoptive Māori daughter Rua, at Wellington High School's bilingual unit, an environment steeped in tikanga Māori and a place where teachers spoke te reo in most lessons.
1: Our aspirations
2: for them going, and it wasn't just Paul and Rua who were to go through the bicultural unit, and there were a few Pākehā going through the through that unit, but we thought, you know... What's good for one is good for the other as well It was a family thing, in a sense. Why
3: was it so important for you that they did that?
2: Because this was the family we were. What we've discovered really since that time is that not, all was not well necessarily within the Picultural cultural unit.
3: Brian and Judith would later find out Paul's years in the bilingual unit were some of the toughest of his life. It was there where he was forced to confront a painful truth.
1: Suddenly I had to prove that I was Māori because up until then when people said, where are you from, I just went Auckland uh, because that's where I'd lived. I really didn't have a concept of hapū, iwi, mountain, river, marae, nothing. But I do look back and, at, now and go, how did I ever survive being in a bilingual unit and having no understanding, and I guess I guess I was a bit shy because of it. And you sort of uh, retire a bit into the background because uh, there were some scary times, and I can't recall any of them apart from just that initial thing where you got to stand up and introduce yourself. <laughs>
3: Strumming the guitar comes naturally to my dad, John Huruyanganui. He's playing a waiata he wrote for his dad and my koro a Pirahama. But koro a Pirahama was not my dad's birth father. He raised him through whāngai, a traditional Māori practice, similar to adoption, where a child is placed into the care of someone in the wider whānau.
8: My parents shortly after I was born meant I was the last of six children and as I understand it my mother felt that difficult to raise a baby alone with five other children to uh, raise and at that time her brother Apirahama already had three girls and one boy and uh, they asked for me to be their whangai because they wanted another boy and and I imagine to help out Juana. Um, who was struggling at that time.
3: Unlike closed stranger adoptions, the Whangai child is raised knowing and often maintaining a close relationship with their birth parents. And what remains absolutely imperative for Whangai children like my dad, John, is that they are connected to Whakapapa.
8: Fortunately for me, Nani Nkoro were very strong at um keeping us connected to our whakapapa Papa so even though we lived in Wellington we'd come back for all of the tangi andihui. So we'd go to parkira. But often we'd go to Ripurwa to Ohaki where nanny and Koro are buried now.
3: So why did so many Māori parents adopt out their children between 1955 and 1985 if fangai was already a well-established practice among Māori and one that would have ensured their children remained connected to Whakapapa? Professor Maria Hainga-Collins says it came down to decisions made by the authorities.
7: Māori families and grandparents in particular who wanted to adopt related children were often deemed by the courts too old and too poor and preference was given to as strangers over Māori kin. And children placed in homes as whāngai had actually no legal recognition in New Zealand and there was fear back then that these children could be removed, which is why whāngai children were also legally adopted in many cases to protect the child and allow the child to remain with the whāngai family.
3: Closed stranger adoption was essentially a way of hiding illegitimate births. It gave childless married couples a chance to become parents and form what was traditionally seen as a normal family structure. And it also gave unmarried women, like Annabelle's birth mother Nicola, an escape from the stigma and shame of falling pregnant out of wedlock.
2: Well, there's always peer pressure and social pressure. There's, that was always, yeah, it was. I mean, I didn't know anybody else who had. Well, I'd known a couple of girls that had got pregnant, but they had got married, so that was.
3: and that wasn't an option for me. Annabelle was born two months premature, and Nicola remembers holding her tiny body moments after birth. But she says it almost seemed like an impossible idea to keep her, as there was very little support for solo mothers then. Nearly as quickly as her baby was delivered and placed into her arms, she was gone again. Annabelle was taken to Karitani Hospital to be cared for while she waited for a new adoptive family, while Nicola lay in an isolated room for a week to recover, left wondering if she'd ever see her baby again. It was my
2: 18th birthday the next day. They put me in a room by myself, which was actually quite lonely because I was getting birthday cards and all these other women were getting baby cards. So that was that was a bit traumatic, really. I don't actually know when she went out to Karatani, but I did not see her in the hospital again after that.
3: It would be 19 years until Annabelle and Nicola would meet. Annabelle gained access to her birth mother's surname through an auntie who had kept it secret – Together, they found Nicola's dad, Lester, in the electoral roll, along with a phone number.
2: Made the phone call to Lester, and I think I had a big spiel. (laughs) And he thought, he thought I was, oh gosh, this woman's trying to sell me something. But then once he figured out, okay, this is who I think this is, he handed me over to Nicola's mum. And then Nicola rang me back later that night and we talked for probably an hour and a half. You know, immediately Nicola said to me, This is who your dad is, David Ahuriri, and then met probably a couple of months later. And it was exciting, but lots of unknowns.
3: Perhaps not the tearful reunion she had envisioned, but for the first time in her life, Annabelle had access to her fucker papa through her father David. And a birth Fano she could identify with.
2: At the time, he said, "Oh, uh, you know, Dad's Ngāti Puro, Mum's Kānunui," and I guess I've since learned then there's, there's a few there's a bit more to that as well. Mm. But that at least meant I could stand up in mihi and, and say those things. With Nicola and her sisters, there's something there—the mannerisms, the things we laugh about—and and so again that feeling of like, "Yep, these are my these
3: are my Fano." When Paul Eagle reached his 20th birthday, he received a phone number for his birth parents from Social Welfare. He met them while he was studying fine arts in the Auckland suburb of New Windsor, the same area, as it happened, where Paul was born.
1: I didn't know how it was going to go, and I just thought positively about it. Look, I certainly didn't have a list of questions to ask them, or, and they didn't, never had a list of things to ask me. We just sort of got to know each other. And I recall it being maybe a couple of hours. I mean, that was probably my, uh, you know, my, my my first sense of relief that in terms of identity and truly being Maori. After that, I thought, yay! Uh, I at least now know that I'm from the Waikato, uh, and I know that my mother is Pakia, dad is Maori. Uh, so it was some relief. <laughs>
3: In August last year, the New Year Pōkai, a series of events celebrating the Kīngitanga movement, had begun. Māori Development Minister Nanaya Mahuta planned to attend the Porphyry at Horahora Marae in Rangiriri, where the Māori King would make his first visit. She invited MP Paul Eagle along too, so he could visit his marae for the first time.
1: We went on to the Murai and it was just a, it's, I won't say surreal, but it just felt really normal. Uh, one of the Komatra, Bunny Tumai, came up and sat next to me. He's sort of legendary, knows uh, the history back to front. And when we came back out to talk about uh, the, the, you know, some local issues, I was sitting next to Nanai and she said to me, Hey, Bunny is recounting your papa." Experiences like that have just made me understand and and appreciate things just a whole lot more.
3: Today, adoption has become far less common, but a lot more open. In the past year, the number available for adoption in New Zealand is down to about 20. From the late 70s and early 80s, adoption rapidly reduced as it became less difficult for unmarried women to access the pill, Open adoptions, which are set out in a contact agreement between the birth parents and the adoptive parents, have allowed most birth parents to stay connected to the child. But Maria Hainga-Collins says there are still big gaps in the adoption legislation that need to be looked at. There's been
7: open adoption practice, but actually that practice can change and it's all up to the adoptive parents. So if they decide, actually we're moving, we don't want contact with the birth parents, they can do that. There's no redress for birth families, right? It's all on the goodwill of adoptive parents. It's totally outdated.
3: Maria heinger collins acknowledges the central role the adoptive parents play in the child's life, She says working with people is always complicated and sometimes it might be necessary to keep birth parents out of the child's life. But she believes in the long term it is always in the best interest of the child to know their birth parents. The Ministry for Children, Oranga Tamariki, declined several requests to be interviewed about how adopted people are supported to stay connected to Whakapapa, In a written response a year ago, the Ministry said,
1: The approved adoptive applicants prepare a personal profile that can be made available to birth families seeking an adoptive family for a child they intend to place for adoption. Within that pool is a list of Māori applicants and their respective iwi. This list is our first stop when Māori birth parents approach us to facilitate an adoption for a Māori infant. Where this is not possible for the infant or baby to go to a Māori home, plans for retaining the child's cultural identity form an important part of discussions with the adoptive parents.
3: Paul Eagle is determined to update the legislation and ensure all adopted Māori children have access to information about their whakapapa.
1: Any Māori child who is subject to the Adoption Act 1955 should immediately know their papa. It should be completely unacceptable that any child is adopted, Māori child, without their papa. To be a respectful process with dignity and to be encompassed with te Māori, you have to have your papa. and they cannot wait till 18. The day they are born, the day it goes to Ministry of Social Development or Oranga Tamariki, the documentation is there
3: but any law change to make that happen will come far too late for some adoptees like Annabelle Ahuriri Driscoll. Though she's answered many of the questions she was looking for, Annabelle says she still feels like she's walking between two worlds, never fully belonging to her taha Māori, her Māori side. I
2: knew more about being Māori but but it was almost not enough in a way. Um, I, I didn't have that lived experience of growing up as Māori so that's probably my biggest struggle is having to learn what that means and that's that's still taking me time. There are things I'm really uncomfortable with. Kanga, I've got no idea. You know, growing up with Pākehās, you just don't get to ao Māori. When I, I'm probably a bit awkward, I'm always... And I think, you know, I'm always terrified that, you know, people are going to work out you don't know
3: what you're doing. (laughs) The feeling is different for Paul Eagle. At the National Kapahaka Festival Te Matatini this year, he watched groups from Waikato Tainui stand on stage to represent his iwi, and he couldn't help but feel a sense of belonging.
1: Being proud about you know Waikato Tainui, and I watched the groups who were from that region perform, uh, and thought, "Wow, this is you know this is great." So never felt out of place, and uh, and knowing where you're from uh, now just as uh, a, just a sort of a, a humble sense of uh, belonging.
3: Paul is now raising his own adopted son and only child, Tamarangi. But unlike his dad's experience growing up, he will know who his birth parents are and where he is from.
1: I'm there to help shape his upbringing. I mean, I know that when he gets to a certain age, he's off. That's fine. But I want to give him the very best start. But I know what that feels like. I know what filling the gap feels like. But I want our son to not have that gap. I want him to hit school. Someone says to him, no he kwe. And he proudly says, no ngāti mūtunga ki whare Aho.
3: And if Paul gets his way while his party is in government, every Māori child who is adopted will know their papa too. That programme was written
0: and presented by Te Huruhanganui. If you'd like to podcast some more long-form journalism, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz insight, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Philippa Tolly, and that's all from Inside for today. Do join us again next time.